0: You're listening to a podcast of Master Your Finances with me, Kurt Baker, a certified financial planner professional, Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. on 1077thebronc.com. Good morning and welcome back to another edition of Master Your Finances presented by Certified Wealth Management and Investment. I am Kurt Baker, a certified financial planner professional located in Princeton, New Jersey. I can be reached our website, which is www.cwmi.us. Or you can call me directly at 609 716 4700. This week, very pleased to have with us uh, Keith Hovey, who is a licensed nurse and attorney. He works as an attorney for the Capital Health Medical Group, a division of Capital Health. He is also the chair of the uh, Political Action Committee for the New Jersey State Nurses Association and the litigation section of the American Association of Nurse Attorneys. Keith has experience handling litigation of healthcare and employment disputes, licensure issues before professional licensure boards, contract negotiations, and hospital policies. He has testified on several occasions before various legislative committees on healthcare-related legislation and issues. Um, Keith, I appreciate you coming on. We've had a lot going on in the last few months, um, and I know you've been on before. I thought it was a great um, time to come back since you have a unique perspective from Uh, a medical perspective, as well as the legal perspective. And there's so much happening right now uh, that impacts both of those. Um, I thought it'd be kind of interesting to kind of see what your perspective is on what's going on. So I guess we'll start off with how did you first get, when this started to develop, what were some of the thoughts that were kind of going through your mind as far as an attorney and and a medical expert? And then as we kind of phased into this, did you have any kind of process? Because I know when I first heard about, what was happening initially was kind of like, okay, there's a flu, uh, be careful. And then it got more serious, more serious. And they're like, okay, they want us to stay home and they shut the gyms. And I'm like, all right, I guess this is pretty serious. So uh, then I kind of went the other way where I'm like really like cautious, right? Now I think I'm somewhere in the middle. I think I have a little bit of understanding about what's going on, but I'm still pretty cautious. So I'm just curious about your uh, perspective on what was happening, uh, you know, given your exposure to these different, you know, the, the medical as well as the legal field.
1: Uh, well, Kurt, uh, great to be back. Uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, I do have to just uh, let everyone know that what uh, information I'm providing is for informational purposes only, It's not for the purposes of legal advice, uh, and that the opinions that I'll be expressing today are mine. They're not the opinions of Capital Health or the New Jersey State Nurses Association. Okay. Uh, so with- I would with expect that, as
0: a good attorney, you would say that. <laughs>
1: So with those disclaimers uh, out of the way, <laughs> gotcha. Uh, you know, we were, I think, like a lot of other um, states uh, and healthcare providers, is you know, we were getting the information as it was coming in, both through media outlets as well as uh, eventually the the CDC, um, and. What happened, at least very quickly for us, particularly in the New York, New Jersey area, is because we were so hit so hard and hit so early on that we really, it became almost like flipping a switch. And at that point in time, we went into, I would say, in the medical field, the term we use is sort of triage mode, right? We then started to prioritize okay, what is it we need? to do immediately to reduce the potential transmission, to get acclimated as to what we need to know both from a healthcare delivery as well as a disaster preparedness standpoint to help ensure that we can deliver the care that we need as quickly as possible and to make sure that we minimize the exposure to the providers, right? To make sure that we're taking care of the people who are gonna take care of the people who are getting sick. Um, You know, one of the fundamental uh, issues you have in healthcare, particularly when you're dealing with whether it's the coronavirus, whether it's Ebola or other conditions, is if your primary care providers go down, there's no one left to take care of everyone else who gets sick. I do
0: remember we did early on. I know that we lost some pretty prominent doctors and things like that. I think, I believe it was New York. Um, So I I think that's when it really became kind of real, right? These people were out and, and I know you can maybe talk about a little bit. this. I know there was, there was concerns about the PPE. There was concerns about protecting them. Was there enough supply? Um, You know, what was going on in the, in the hospital? Were they actually functioning without necessarily being protected? So, And we weren't even sure exactly fully how to protect, right? Is my understanding like how how cautious did you have to be? I mean, I'm just curious about how because I know that was kind of a a big topic initially was like how do we do this? And I guess the ventilators came next, but I think we start off with the actual uh, profession, right? First, you have to, as you point out, you've got to maintain the structure to take care of the rest of us. If that's not in place, then we're all in serious trouble, right? If you don't have that that expertise out there, Um, so what was kind of going through their minds about how do we make sure we have what we need? If we don't have it, how do we get it? Right. What What was that process like?
1: Right. So you know, uh, any institution that's dealing with a new uh, virus, new medical condition, right. The first thing you need to do is make sure that your individual, your staff, your providers are protected. So the easiest thing to do at that point in time is provide them the most protection possible. Right. So it's right. It's uh, face masks, shields, gowning up. Right. Uh, a, and then abiding by the strictest precautions as provided by the cdc so um you know in that regard healthcare institutions and even institutions like new jersey state nurses association um, which is a membership-based organization, is looking to those people who have the most resources and greatest access to information, right? So that, in our case in the United States, is the CDC, right? This is what they do all the time. Mm-hmm. So our job then as an institution that provides care based on their recommendations is to form a committee to make sure that the information gets disseminated to the people who need it. So. It may be things like drafting policies, it's doing instructional videos, because, right, because in this situation, what we need to do is we need to educate everyone who's going to be providing direct patient care as to how to appropriately protect themselves and minimize transmission to other individuals.
0: No, I think that brings up a lot of great points in there. I just remember, when I'm not not that it's the same, but not the same. I mean, as a merchant marine, we went through this only process, right? If you had a catastrophic event on the ship or catastrophic event, you went through all these drills and processes and things like that. Um, and you're always checking to make sure you have certain things in place. So if things happen, you can respond to it. I guess some of the things that came up initially that um, I was wondering how this worked out, like if, if because there's a lot of hospitals out there, and I assume that there is somewhat of a disaster preparation policy, right? Like we have things, right? I mean, we know that there's ebbs and flows with different things, whether it's PPE or something else. Um, and I know that was a topic initially. Well, we didn't we didn't appear to have enough and there, there seemed to be some kind of sharing that went on, right? So if New York was being hit hard, maybe if I'm not hit, getting hard, hit hard in the Midwest, maybe they're sending stuff out this way. So was this all communicated or was this something already in place or did it have to be kind of done on the fly? You remember how all that worked?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, So uh, it's a bit of a combination of both, right? So you're essentially pursuing two tracks at the same time. One is you're doing uh, an internal assessment as to what do you have and what are your immediate needs, and then doing some initial projections as to where you think you're going to be in sort of the near future. How far out those projections have to go is also based then on logistics, which is, purchasing, acquiring, to then supplement and backfill what your current needs are. So uh, the difficulty in the New York, New Jersey um, area was that we, we didn't have a real model other than some of what we were seeing in Europe and in China. And again, you know that information and, and how quickly and hard they were hit the lag was not that great. You know, we're talking about a month, you know, two months at most. And at that point in time, there's not really enough data out there to sort of analyze as to what your overall needs are, how the virus is going to behave. Um, and also you're trying to compare China, which has a billion people, right? And then you're looking at, at Europe, which um, you know is a little bit different from, you know, its – its layout and the way its people move and behave versus the United States, right? Mm-hmm. So you're, it's, not a, it's not a pure apples to apples comparison. And we're doing that at the same time, we're trying to even assess where in the United States the virus is landing, right? So the logistics for us to get PPE, say from California to New York, or even if it's somewhere in the Midwest to somewhere in New York, we're trying to assess both where it needs to go but we only can do that once we know where the virus is and we're a country where people are traveling across state lines all the time. So um, there was a lot of assessing at various levels of both from the logistics side, the healthcare provider side, and then trying to project out based on what limited information we had.
0: And I I remember as part of that, that we we had this like 14 day lag, which I think they realized early on there was a lag, I don't remember if we knew it was 14 or days or not, but I know they knew that just because you seem, seem like you're fine doesn't necessarily mean you're not contagious. And I, and I think that was a big concern of a lot of us was like, oh, wow, we have people r- literally r- going around um, you know, spreading the virus and not even realizing they're spreading the virus, uh, which, of course, is really dangerous, right? Because then they, they're not self-protecting at that point. They're like, oh, I'm fine. I, you know, I'm know, i not going to hurt anybody, which we've learned right. is not the case, right? Correct. <laughs> necessarily. And,
1: right. And if you look at the lifetime, even from... When we started to have our first initial cases, until all of a sudden, then even in New Jersey, when the mask mandate came down, if you think about having you know a month, and then even as we look back, it's possible that in some cases we're here in New Jersey, you know, as early as January, even possibly December, right? That during that entire time, you have people interacting who are asymptomatic, potentially transmitting the virus. Um, so by the time we sort of had an appreciation, we were already at the point in time where infections were much higher than we had an appreciation for. And then once um, when, once you have the uh, infection rate is uh, going up, then you have the lag of the rate of death. And then mm-hmm. that when the death rate started to follow the infection rate is when we had an, a greater appreciation as to, how transmitted the disease had become, how prevalent it had in our communities. And then that became the the concern, right? Because that's what you're dealing with from a treatment standpoint is you're trying to prevent the death. And now we've got all these healthcare providers who have never encountered the condition trying to address um, how to minimize hospitalization, keep people out of the ICUs, and then keep the, the mortality rate down And everybody is learning about the disease at the same time. right? Mm -hmm. So there are lots of interventions we now do in the hospital and preventative measures we take that we just didn't have that knowledge of back in March and in April.
0: Yeah. uh, Yeah. I'm going to take a quick break here. You listen to Master Finances. We're going to be right back.
1: Welcome back. You're listening to Master Finances. I'm Kurt Baker here with Keith Hovey, and
0: we're talking about like kind of how some of this information developed over um, the initial phases of the of the pandemic, kind of hitting the United States. And you mentioned that we really knew very little um, at the time, right? We had a little bit of information out of China, some information out of Europe, and then New York got hit really hard. Um, and I just remember back then we we really didn't have any idea what was going to happen. At one point, we thought, well, this is going to be not much. And then next minute we're like, oh, this is going to be really serious. We're, you know, we're going to lose, you know, significant part of the population, uh, and we're of course somewhere in between now. Um, one of the things that I remember that, um, and of course this is kind of a hot topic now. Of course, is like this whole mask idea, right? So at one point they said, don't worry about wearing a mask, and then and now we're back to the point where definitely wear one if you can't social distance. Come um, kind of my understanding. If you're outside, you're probably okay as long as you're not, you know, close to people. If you're close to people, definitely wear it. Um, you know, indoors, some companies are saying definitely wear it. I mean, some of the large chains, other chains are like, we're not going to enforce it depending on, I'm just wondering about your perspective on all this. Why initially they said, don't worry about a mask. And then all of a sudden they said, definitely worry about it. And under certain circumstances, all like, do you want to kind of walk through all that, why there's so many different pieces of information on that?
1: Right. I, I think, uh, I mean, the first is follow the CDC guideline, which is wear a mask right mm-hmm. the things that we know that we can do to drastically reduce the transmission of the coronavirus uh, is wear a mask wash your hands regularly uh, and socially distance right if we're doing those things that's uh will if everyone is doing that we will tremendously reduce the transmission rate of the virus uh the issue in large part comes, I think, as far as the what the recommendations are as they were coming out is that we were we were trying to understand the virus and the way the virus moves. When I say moves, means how it's transmitted from one person to another. When a person is infected, how does then that person transmit it to other people? The only way we get that information is when the virus has been in existence. We are constantly playing catch-up, right? You don't ever get ahead. You simply follow the breadcrumbs right and as we're going through the forest here we didn't have the luxury of time to sit and analyze the data remember the same people who are going to be analyzing the data um, in part are waiting for the people who are providing the information because they're the frontline healthcare providers are collecting it based on their experiences and what they're documenting that then information gets relayed to people at the cdc and other academic institutions who are analyzing it Mm -hmm. so we have to collect it before it can then be analyzed and that process just takes time and if you're dealing with a hospital that has no capacity for future patients simply because everyone is taking care of coronavirus patients you're resources are limited and directed towards caring for the people who have the illness rather than doing the data analysis and collecting it, right, that becomes secondary to the primary goal of saving lives. And that's what initially we were doing. We were saving lives and then letting other people sort of come behind us to analyze the data, as it became available, knowing, again, that the priority was first is how do we treat these people and try to just keep them alive.
0: Do you, you want to talk a little bit about um, how the hospital system kind of had to make major adjustments. I know that things like a lot of the elective surgeries were stopped. And and in some cases, I mean, I hear about like uh, people talk about elective surgeries to some people, they not necessarily be, not necessarily be elective, right? It's kind of like, um, you know, if they have a heart condition or if they have something fairly serious, but it's not like an emergency, right? So right um i know that there's because there was concerns out there that well some things it might be an inconvenience like maybe if your knee's bad it, it's going to be very painful for a while which is not great obviously but other people may have like a heart condition where th- it's not an emergency but we really don't want you coming in and you had to reset up kind of the hospital right Didn't you have to segregate places and things like that you want to maybe talk a little bit about that how that impacted you from a procedural as well as from a financial standpoint um how that affected the hospital system
1: right so the once we understood and had better appreciation as to transmission, then within uh, hospitals, not just Capital Health, but across the state, uh, and particularly saw this in nursing homes, was the idea of creating COVID based units, right, that we were trying to minimize The transmission from people who we were had confirmed COVID cases to people who did not have or had already tested negatively for COVID. Because the idea is right is we need one, we got to minimize transmission. And at the same time, you're a healthcare provider knowing that in some scenario situations uh, and settings, for example, rehab facilities and nursing homes those people can't go anywhere else. They're socially distanced only to the extent that you have them. So it's then a matter of, okay, well, we've got healthcare providers who are treating COVID patients. We're gonna keep them treating COVID patients. And then you're going to have non-COVID or people who've tested negatively on different units, and then their providers will only be providing care for non-COVID patients. Right. So there became socially distancing within the healthcare facility settings to minimize transmission. But that became a reconfiguration. Right. So um, another would be, um, for example, units that have the ability to um, treat ventilator uh, dependent patients. So, for example, a unit called like a PACU, a post anesthesia care unit that would then become almost like a. Um, a hybrid or essentially a pseudo-intensive care unit, it would become a place where someone could be on a ventilator. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas you couldn't have that on, say, other areas of the, the hospital. So you need to be have a place where you could treat or have additional intensive care unit patients and have them treated by providers who are specialized in treating patients who are in the intensive care units. Right? In other words, you know, you don't want uh, a nurse who spent their entire life in pediatric oncology all of a sudden now trying to figure out how to work a ventilator and taking care of a COVID patient. Right? You need people with the specialized training. You know, if you've got a heart condition, you don't go to your gastroenterologist, you go to a cardiologist. Well, the same is true in nursing. So the nurses who are taking care of these patients need to be taking care of patients when they've got the skill set for it. So then there's also a a shortage. How do you make sure that you have enough intensive care unit trained nurses to care for this influx of patients? So it's not just a matter of do you have the beds, it's do you have the requisite staff? And remember, you know, intensive care units, you now have a nurse who typically takes care of sometimes two to three intensive care unit patients is now gowned up in one room all day with one patient. Right, so then you've got a staffing issue as to making sure you have the people with the requisite skills and enough of them to take care of the people who are really sick. So there's a lot going on to make sure that we're providing the best possible care when we're minimizing transmission within a facility knowing that we're going to have to have COVID and non-COVID patients. I mean, imagine being a family of four and trying to keep separated, half the people have COVID and half don't. And you're trying to keep everybody, you know, those two groups separated within one household.
0: Yeah, that sounds really difficult. A couple of things you brought up. I, I, two things I remember. I guess some of the, some, there were people coming in from from outside of the state, is my understanding. And now aren't aren't they, we'll, we'll go to the attorney side of this. Aren't they licensed? If I'm a California nurse, isn't that where I'm licensed to practice? So if I'm coming to New Jersey or New York, I'm technically not licensed in the state, right? So how did they, how were they able to bring these people in Um to, to work, right? Obviously, we needed them. Uh, so how did that all work as far as bringing people in from outside of the area? So that
1: process is still ongoing. What happened is on a state by state basis, mind you, every nurse, every physician, every physician assistant, nurse practitioner, right? Everyone who has a healthcare license is licensed within the state in which they originate. Um, There are some exceptions, but that gets a bit esoteric. But let's say for the purposes everyone is simply licensed in the state in which they live. Then, therefore, to practice in another state, you have to have one of two things. You either have to have a license in that state or there has to be some sort of a waiver provided to you. And what New Jersey did and many other states did is we provided during uh, the pandemic, the state of emergency as declared by the governor, to allow people with out-of-state licenses to practice in New Jersey. In other words, to help with the um, the need for additional staffing, bring in nurses, bring in physicians and other licensed healthcare providers to help uh, in the hospital setting. The other thing that we did is by removing elective surgeries, we also expanded telemedicine. So there's been an incredible increase in healthcare being provided to patients by way of you know, electronic devices, whether it's the phone, whether it's uh, over uh, the computer by way of a portal, or even as easy as FaceTime, you know, Zoom, and you know, Google Meet, uh, depending on what the patient has access to. Now, typically what happens in telemedicine is the patient, the physician has to be licensed at the state where the patient is located. So if I'm a New Jersey provider and my patient's out in Nebraska, well, if I'm the provider, I have to make sure that I'm licensed in Nebraska and that um, I can provide telemedicine, both from a billing standpoint, but even just the ability to be licensed and practice in that state. Uh, so what happened to us and one of the things that we were um, had a, and a lot of other providers had to do quickly, which is... When people were trying have find their patients were quarantined in other states, is we had to make sure and we have to still have to make sure that our providers are licensed in those states when they're providing that care. So if you're a patient and you're not in New Jersey and you're contacting your New Jersey-based provider, you need to make sure your provider knows that you're out of state before you have your telehealth visit. Because yeah. there's a legal department behind there that has to make sure that for all 50 states, because it's not uniform, every state is different. The requirements are different for every state. Some states don't have waivers. Some waivers have expired. Uh, their telehealth rules are different. Their licensure rules are different. So every time that um, a patient is out of state, you know there's a process that has to be gone through from the legal standpoint to make sure that we can even provide the care.
0: Right. Excellent points, uh, Keith. You're listening to Master Your Finances. We're going to be right back. Welcome back. You're listening to Master Your Finances. I'm Kurt Baker here with Keith Hovey. And we've been talking a little bit about telemedicine just before we broke. Um, and he uh, you know, was talking about the different licensing and the fact that it's different in different states. So you have to be really careful about uh, when you're doing the telemedicine, is everything in place structurally, legally in order to have that relationship. Um, I, I've heard from several people that, three or four months ago would never have dreamed of doing a telemedicine call. Even some, even some professionals who did it on a limited basis are, you know, they're telling me like my whole like afternoon is all telemedicine type stuff, right? It's like, it's like much more utilized than it had been in the past. And I was uh, wondering from your perspective, what have we kind of learned from the professional side of the, of the screen as well as from the patient side of the screen, maybe some things that we weren't aware of, or now that maybe we're doing a little bit better than we would have been doing three or four months ago even.
1: Yeah, I think uh great point. I think one of the things that we have um benefited from as a result of the pandemic is that in a very short period of time, people have become very comfortable and um have acclimated to the idea of telemedicine, right? So People have had to become very comfortable with both the technology on the even on the provider side. You know, providers have had to get comfortable very quickly with providing telemedicine and familiarity with. And with that practice, their medical practice improves, right? Through experience, we get more experience and we get better at it. Um, I think also what we're gonna have then is a greater data sample at some point in time in the future to then be able to go back and analyze what was the quality of care, right? And that analysis is gonna come much later down the road, but we're gonna have a much larger sample, particularly in the New Jersey, New York, and then now as you see other states spiking and their telehealth medicine practices increase, they're gonna have data samples as well that we're gonna be able to analyze quality of care. I think on the flip side, from the patient standpoint, what we've learned is that some patients really like it, right? There's a convenience factor, and now there's a comfort level with it. Um, I think early on, also, one of the things is that people who would never have thought to use telemedicine said, you know what? I've got a condition. I just can't wait, but I'm too scared, or I'm immunocompromised, or I've got someone at home who's immunocompromised. Um, I, I have to use it they were forced into using telemedicine and as a result after the experience they said geez, that was a lot easier than I thought or that didn't that didn't go as poorly as I thought it might um, or I just really liked the convenience because you know my kids are at home because uh, they're out of school and I only had to take a half an hour rather than you know two hours to go see my doctor
0: yeah I would think the convenience is really huge but I'm assuming that you can't do everything through telemedicine. So if I have a condition is is my first response to try that. And then they'll say, here's what we can do, you know, and well, maybe you need to still come in, right? Depending on what the situation is. But I'm assuming a a number of things can be screened, especially, I'm I'm just thinking when I had young children is like, there's a lot of stuff where as a young parent, you're like, oh my gosh, what's going on? So you bring your kid over, put him in front of the screen, explain what's going on. Oh no, you're fine. Or, or maybe you're not fine. Right. But I, I would suspect, we found out as you became a parent longer that many of these things were just us being concerned as a parent um but they could differentiate that fairly quickly and 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 then only come in if you really need to right
1: right and i think this goes to sort of on both sides right so physicians now are getting a little bit more adept and saying, okay well i don't just need them sitting there um you're you're having some concerns with your gate just step back and walk, right? Mm-hmm. Take a couple steps, right? And then their ability to do an assessment expands because they're getting more familiar. The flip side with the the parents is, well, what things do parents have at home? Well, geez, they've they've got a thermometer, right? So like, okay, let me take the temperature right now or let me look at the child or let me look at you. Hey, can you open your mouth for, you know, there are certain things you can do, but then also there's always the benefit that the standard of care is still the same. In other words, you don't get less quality care or a physician doesn't get to, um, or a healthcare provider doesn't escape any sort of liability because they're providing telemedicine. They don't get Mm -hmm. to provide you less care. What they have to do is say, well, geez, you know what? I have some questions about this. I don't feel like I can provide you the full care necessary for what I'm seeing. There are other things I need to know, and I can only do that in person. So I'm going to need you to come in, mm-hmm. right? And they schedule that visit. And that could be anything from, hey, you might be having a heart attack. you got to go to the ER right now. Mm-hmm. Or um, I have uh, I have an opening this afternoon to, it doesn't look that serious. So why don't we see what you got later on in the week as far as you coming in? Right. So, but the standard, the care that is being provided, that level is still the same, whether it's telemedicine or in person.
0: Yeah. I I mean, I could actually see where it might actually improve because somebody might be more likely to make a, to set up a phone call because it's more convenient. I know many people are busy and they're like, oh, they put it off, put it off, put it off. And then they don't ever see the physician because it's just too inconvenient. Um, But if you can actually get on the phone or, you know, and talk to somebody, then at least you can clear it up one way or the other and kind of move on. Right. Right.
1: And that ties right back into the concern that we have with the coronavirus and people being afraid to come in and see and make an appointment with their providers, right? Because the one concern that we had early on with the coronavirus is that people were having conditions that they were then willing to dismiss and say, you know what, I'll just put it off. You know, Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll see how I feel later on. Right, And then what we know, in that a lot of instances, whether it's your heart or it's potential stroke, right, there are certain conditions that we need you to come to us, right? We need to shorten and truncate that time for the healthcare delivery and interventions. And right. our concern is that people aren't getting those because they're too afraid of the coronavirus.
0: And I can see where it ties into even even the, there were even people, they even said when you had the corona, even if you had the coronavirus, if you were able to manage it at home and and there was no other other conditions that were going to put you in serious danger they were actually recommending we stay home because then you're less contagious you're not going to infect other people um so there is actually kind of this balancing act right so even if you had the virus um and i can see where telemedicine might come into play like okay i think i may have it they can do an analysis and say well you look you look okay now why don't you just stay home right Right. we'll manage it from home then if it gets more serious we'll bring you in right Right. then you're only bringing in the patients that probably really need, you know, the 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 full care uh, at the hospital, right, is, is what it sounds like.
1: Right. And, and with that, right, we don't want to lose the trees through the forest in the sense that if you're having chest pain, mm-hmm. it's appropriate to have concerns about the coronavirus. But if you're having chest pain, you're sweaty or diaphoretic, and you have numbness down your left arm, right, you need to go to a hospital, right? Like don't delay those treatments because you're afraid of the coronavirus. If you're having symptoms that you would otherwise go to a doctor, that's a perfect time for a telehealth visit Mm -hmm. or if they're more urgent, right? To be reaching out and still go to your emergency room.
0: And that kind of bring, I mean, you bring up the fear a couple of times and I think that um, is very, very uh, big part of this entire thing, right? So it's good to be concerned um, at an appropriate level, right? So I think that's having a large impact. Of course, we have all the, the shutdowns, the partial shutdowns. Do you want to talk a little bit about how concerned we should be and you know, the different aspects of the economy that have been closed down literally? Like I can't, I can go swimming in the pool outside of my gym, but I can't go in the gym and have a class, right? There's some things I can do and some things I can't do. Um, uh, but I know people that are like, I'm not going out regardless. And other people are like, I don't really care. It's no big deal. Now, it, the, the answer is probably somewhere really in the middle, I would assume. Um, so, how do we kind of address this this large, uh, you know, variation between different people? And where does it all? Where do we really fit in here? And how do we, because we have to run and we have to run the economy, right? We can't just completely stop. We have to move ahead at some pace, correct?
1: Right. Um, you know, Governor Murphy has said, you know, data turns dates, and um, you know, we've almost we've heard that almost ad nauseam, and I think in a positive way, right? That the information is gonna tell us what things we can do. And again, back to my prior analogy, we are following breadcrumbs, right? In other words, as we start to ease restrictions, we then get information, but then that information has to be collected, it has to be analyzed, and then once we get the results, it's not linear. We don't simply do one research study and say, okay, we're done, we're all set, this is what we're gonna do. You have to replicate that research. You have to replicate, or you're going to slightly change some variables, do some additional research, and see if that the outcome from the prior research is accurate or is correct. I'll give you an example. You know, several months ago, there was a research study coming out of Norway saying that gyms were fine, no, no problems. But that was a small sample, it was one study, and now we have a different study out of China where you had because of air conditioner flow, you have people on one side of the restaurant getting infected, and yet the people on the other side of the restaurant did not. But again, those are very small samples. We can't simply take one research study and say, okay, we're just going to do for an entire state you know, of millions of people and just say, this is what we're going with. So we need to replicate the research, but that data only comes in as we ease the restrictions. You know, one of the concerns that we have as a hospital and you know, across the board as a you know healthcare system providers is knowing that you know healthcare facilities are the second largest employer in the state of New Jersey. You know, if we're not doing elective procedures, um, you know, if we're only taking care of COVID related patients, then you know that creates a financial strain on healthcare institutions as employers, not just as healthcare providers. Um, You know, the state has decreased revenue because people aren't working and unemployment is up, right? So the economic realities are real and we have to be cognizant of them. But again, also recognizing that if we have another surge, then everything goes back to, you know, phase one. We are are then shutting everything down because then we have to reassess as to where we went wrong, Mm -hmm. right? And then we've got to do all that data collection and reevaluation and reassessment again. And that took us several months even to get where we are now. So the progress in reopening has to be incremental. Um, and you know, the data just is not clear right now. And I think a lot of people are thinking about, well, what about schools and reopening? Well, we've got a couple major events coming up with respect to potential surge events. Right? If you look at the calendar, you've got people going back to school, you have Labor Day weekend. Uh, then you've got Halloween, Thanksgiving, and Christmas, right? So you have, and remember that one of the issues that's real when you're dealing with social distancing and isolation is you get uh, quarantine fatigue, right? The longer people are in it, the longer they get tired of complying, the more likely they are to become non-compliant,
0: that's really critical. Uh, and I would definitely want to get into that. Uh, you're, we're going to come up on a break here real quick. Uh, Keith, we'll be right back. You're listening to Master Your Finances. Welcome back. You're listening to Master Your Finances. I'm Kurt Baker here with Keith Hovey. And but just before the break, I think a couple of things that are important. One is you mentioned um, how we may have a kind of a resurgence as some of the normal things start to happen in the fall. And one of these I've heard about is whether or not the republic is going to respond. I mean, how are they going to respond to that if we say, Oh, wow, we really have to lock everything down? I'm a little concerned about what might happen if that literally is the conversation. And another big event going on, as you pointed out, was this going back to school. Um, some parents are like, I want my kids back five days a week. And you know, other people saying, We're gonna do this remotely. And obviously, we it's hard to do both of those, right? So the system has to somehow adjust to that. I think Princeton's doing every other week four days a week for like four or five hours a day or something like that. So it's some kind of, tr- with the rest being done, uh, you know, by a video conference type thing. Who can't necessarily work from home for the next four or five months. So you, you add all these complicated issues into this thing too. Um, so what are your thoughts about how we try to manage this as best we can?
1: I think one of the things to sort of point out um, how reliant are system is on our children being in a uh, school setting five days a week, right? And if you think about some of the social programs uh, and the the well-being of children is really dependent upon their interacting, not only with other children, but also with professionals, guidance counselors, teachers, school nurses, I Think about how many kids Abuse and neglect cases get reported because those kids are in school. Um, Issues of mental health, um, suicide prevention, right, are diagnosed and screened because those kids are in an environment, because they're having conversations with friends, they're able to talk to a guidance counselor. How many kids get meals, square meals, because they're in a school, you know, uh, on site, you know, uh, five days a week? or just the fact that they're escaping whatever potential domestic uh, violence issues and abuses going on at home, What even if they're not uh, directly the recipient of it, they're still exposed to it, right? And all of those opportunities for those kids to communicate um, is removed when they are isolated at home. There's also the flip side though, which is then we don't have a tremendous amount of data yet as to how different age groups transmit the disease and that's a legitimate concern right because what we don't want is we don't want um, high transmitters getting the disease right getting the coronavirus and then bringing it home to people who are immunocompromised or Right. Depending on where you are socioeconomically, what your living situation is. Right. Are you in a multi-family dwelling unit? Uh, are you living with someone who is an essential worker and has a high risk of exposure to it? And then you're bringing it to school and then giving it to other kids to then bring to their houses. Right. So then you have your are you increasing the potential for transmission? So there's a really difficult balancing, not to mention the potential exposure to school administrators, teachers, custodial workers, cafeteria workers, right? There's a lot that needs to be balanced and is a very complicated issue, right? And we need both the CDC recommendations. uh, We need the input of teachers' unions. We need the input of school boards as well as uh, government officials at the the county and state uh, and local levels, right? Um, And we've got a month to do it. Like, you know, (laughs)
0: not not a lot of time, right?
1: (laughs) Um, And then also on top of it, there's the economic structure, which is parents who have to go to work. Right. Essential workers need the child care. Right. There's a child care component to to school. Um, So there's a lot at play as as we go through this. And the last thing that uh, I haven't mentioned before is, you know, Viruses, you know, I've heard comparisons of coronavirus to the flu. And maybe five and 10 years from now, we'll be able to say that more definitively. But viruses, this is a novel one, as Dr. Fauci has said repeatedly. And what that means when we say novels is we don't know how it interacts with the body over the long term. We're still learning about how it even interacts with bodies in the short term, based on young people, healthy people, immunocompromised, uh, people with pre-existing conditions that didn't initially seem related to the virus. Uh, so for example, is there going to be some element of the virus that's similar to chickenpox? Where you get chickenpox as a child, you don't get the vaccine, you got chicken pox. And then 20, 30 years later, you develop shingles, which can be very painful, right? And cause other exacerbations and issues with other pre-existing medical conditions. Right, so it's not a single entity like the flu, where you just get sick one winter, um, and then you're fine after that, that there may be some long-term, right? Maybe it's like HIV, AIDS, where you have the virus, and then there's some sort of conversion component that could go on, you know, later on. And I don't say this to be an alarmist, but merely just point out that we haven't had enough time with the virus to be able to study it to know what the long-term effects are. And some of it may be not come to fruition at all. It may actually be some components are more like the flu, but we yeah. don't know that yet.
0: And I remember back when we first started this whole exercise of shutting down is that we had the quote, I f- heard the flatten the curve, right? Flatten yeah. the curve, flatten the curve, flatten the curve. And then when, once we started to flatten it, then some people started saying, well, now we have to have a vaccine. And and I remember the response from some people was like, well, we don't have a vaccine for HIV yet. We have a We have therapeutics, but we haven't. Some things we just haven't solved, um, you know, so you still have to balance all this, right? Because again, you have to function at some level and still be cautious. So given that we don't really know a whole lot about this yet and every every week and month we're learning more and more about how to better manage that. So any, any thoughts about, you know, what our target should be at least over the next few months so that we can operate? Uh, and I know you mentioned the, the basics would like, you know, wear a mask and wash your hands and socially distance. And those seem really basic, but they seem extremely effective. So why don't we yep. just do the easy stuff? I mean, to me, that sounds like a no-brainer, right? Um, and let's hope that the rest of it works out. If we can organize our businesses and our schools and things that at least comply with those aspects, I think we have a huge chance of uh, mitigating uh, you know, some kind of huge jump in the fall because that's what everybody talks about now. That second wave is going to be a big jump, right? And then right. what's going to happen? So w- what are your thoughts about that?
1: So I think one of the really important things is as we continue to work towards and are successful in reducing transmission. What that allows us to do is when we do our testing is to be able to do contact tracing, which means we'll then have a better understanding because as we're able to isolate individuals, we'll be able to dedicate what what resources we do have to the fewer number of cases that are being identified and trace them back to the source and to do that faster. And then that gives us a better idea as to how the virus is behaving, right? That's really crucial because that's data and that's closer to real-time data the fewer cases we get as we're able to test more effectively and then trace it back to the source uh, or the point of contact or origin. Um, So I think that that's one major uh, component that we're looking at as we're sort of flattening the curve or sort of reducing it. Uh, you
0: mentioned something that's kind of interesting. I mean, I think right now the United States is way ahead of everybody else as far as testing per capita at this point, which I think is a great thing. And so I'm assuming that's going to help if we know whether or not there's an issue. I mean, I went down to Florida, I visited my father, was at high risk and, and things like that. And so I ended up getting tested. Just we wanted to be sure negative, no problem. But um now that, but that wouldn't have been available two or three months ago. I wouldn't have been able to do that. And now I think there's more stuff coming out. So what are your thoughts about the testing and how that's going to help us and impact things moving ahead?
1: So I think it's important, right? People, uh, you know, one term that people have used is is herd immunity. This idea that if enough people get infected, uh, then what will happen is, is then that will sort of help for the purposes of future vaccines that enough people will have been infected and that they will have the antibodies and then they will be able to reopen because enough people have, will have reached a critical mass. The one concern we have with that is um, in order to identify sort of the success of herd immunity, we need to know how effective having antibodies is against future infections and exposures. And we don't have enough of that data yet, right? Because if you think about when we're, you know, infection was at its highest in New Jersey, it was around mid-April. Well, that's only, you know, that's not four months. I mean, we're not even four months out from that. So to be able to sort of get enough of a sample as to whether or not those people do have potential for reinfection, how successful is their antigens against re- reinfection. So really what we need, again, is back to school. The basic point, which is wear a mask, wash your hands, socially distance, we can be hopeful for a vaccine, but realize that a vaccine, again, is a matter of developing it and then testing it, evaluating the results to see if it's effective. And if not, then we start, Oh, you know, we're going to a different um we're not restarting, but essentially, we're not pursuing that avenue, or at least where that promising, quote unquote, uh, results were from. We've gotta go and look at a different option. Um, and that's why we've got multiple options at the same time. But just realizing that, you know, not only do we need to identify, you know, create um, and test a vaccine as to how successful it is, but once it is, then we have to mass produce it and disseminate it because then we're back to the healthcare providers, which is we need enough of them trained. And then there also has to be um, enough materials for the purposes of glass vials, you know, syringes, right? And these are all logistics issues. So when we talk about a vaccine, it's not simply having a successful vaccine it's that we need to have the providers to deliver it and we need to have the materials to transport it so it's everything from you know the guy making the glass vials to the truck driver driving it across country to the nurse giving it in a school or a cvs or an urgent care center um, to make sure that enough people get it
0: no, that's a great point. I remember that was, that's similar to what was going on when they actually started doing the testing, right? With different tests and different, you know, once they figured it out, they had to get the machines out and everything to do it with another thing you brought up there. I just want to talk about it quickly, um, is the anti antigen test, right? Or antibody test type things to see if you actually do have a potential immunity, which we don't really know what that means right now, right? You might get it again next year. We don't know. Is that test out there yet at any level? Cause I don't really hear a whole lot of discussion about an antibody test.
1: Right, so there are three different types of tests as of right now. There's the sort um, of drive-through test that people know, which is the nasal swab test. Mm-hmm. That's the standard one. That's the one that confirms whether or not you have active virus in the respiratory system. The uh, there was a reference to uh, then there's the antibody test. The antibody test is also been referred to as the serum test. That's drawing blood to see whether or not you have antibodies that have been developed as a result of having exposure to the coronavirus. And then there's antigen tests. Uh, Antigen tests uh, um, were initially by the CDC um, not approved and, and recommended. I don't know if that has been changed because predominantly what people have been directed to has been either the um, uh, the respiratory the the nasal swab test, uh, or uh, some and some people have been um, sought the antigen. I'm mean, sorry, the um, antibody test. Okay. Um, when we talk about whether or not the uh, whether or not there's immunity to future exposure, we don't have all that uh, the data enough to know. We're starting to uh, collect that, meaning the the CDC, um, because of enough lapse in time as to whether or not what we do know, the CDC has put out uh, information is that some people who have been testing positive on subsequent nasal swabs um, don't actually have an active communicable virus. So even though you might test positive uh, based on a nasal swab, you may not actually have an active virus but there's still the presence because you're still shedding it mm-hmm. so there's still again so that the, the data is still coming in and we're still trying to you know um identify best practices based on um what we're learning
0: well keith this has been amazing uh we're gonna wrap it up here but there's an excellent job of going through all of that for us Do you know have any last thoughts before we go
1: Uh, The simplest thing to do is wear a mask, wash your hands, uh, and socially distance.
0: Yeah, Great advice, Keith. Again, thank you very much. Um, You're listening to Master Your Finances. You can subscribe to the podcast and listen to all of them at MasterYourFinances.us. Remember, together we can master your finances so you can enjoy financial peace of mind.